0: Why don't you go ahead and, and have a seat? Uh, oh. um, last week, um, before preaching time, um, I asked that you, where you were, kind of get together with the people who are here with you and, and um, that you would take a few moments just to pray together. Uh, I appreciate you doing that, there's, there's something beautiful about hearing the the rumbling of voices of God's people calling out to him. Um, This morning, what I want to do is honor our introverts. And I'm going to ask that just for the next two minutes, that we sit in our seats, bow our heads, close our eyes, and just spend the next two moments, two minutes, asking God to open our hearts to do a wonderful work in us personally. That, that should be our prayer every Sunday, shouldn't it? So may that be the prayer of our hearts for the next few moments. So why don't we just bow our heads, close our eyes, and, and spend some time praying. Lord, we, um, you and I have talked a lot this week. So I'm, I'm thankful that, uh, that I can talk to you. Lord, I am sorry that two minutes of absolute silence with people praying seems like such a long time. Because Lord, I know that in my heart, if you were as great and awesome and beautiful and wondrous and glorious as I just sang, then two minutes wouldn't seem like anything. Um, forgive me. Lord, I pray this morning, as we walk through um, difficult topics, sensitive topics, that um, my heart and your heart would be aligned, that my mouth and your words would be consistent. I ask for grace, strength. I ask that in these moments, at the hearts and minds and lives of the people who call Uniontown home, and the people who just happen to be stopping by, that we would be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, and that the difference would be undeniable. Fill us with your spirit, for it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Take your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 2. Strange as it is, first book of the Bible, often Genesis 1, Genesis 2 are the hardest chapters in the Bible to actually find when you're trying to turn the pages. Um, Just by way of introduction, um, for those of you that weren't here last week, wow, are you in for a good time this week? Um, (laughs) We began our series on the issues of gender, marriage, and sexuality last week. Um, Today we are going to work through the issue of marriage. But just introduction, just to let you know what to expect. we're going to work through what we believe the Bible teaches, we're going to work through what are some of the concerns in our culture that they would hold uh, against what we believe the Bible teaches, um, the call for courage among God's people, and then finally, the, the call for compassion. Um, so last week was, was a difficult message to preach because, quite honestly, there's, there's very little that specifically talks about gender issues, male, female, what makes a person a male makes a person a female. Um, this one is difficult for the opposite reason There is so much in scripture about marriage So what, what I want to do is, is kind of lay it out What it's going to feel like is I am not talking about the controversial subjects And then all of a sudden it's going to feel like I'm talking about nothing but controversial subjects So just to kind of give you that little bit of a preview there um, I will say this at the onset We are going to deal with homosexual marriage, gay marriage in the American culture I'm going to talk about that today and uh, there, there'll be some of us who are here who will want me as the, the pastor preacher uh, and the elders as the leadership team who, who prayed and wrestled through this topic to be much more harsh on what we say and our stance on homosexual marriage. There's also going to be some people in this room who think that we are being way too harsh and so we should be less so. Um, But I want to begin our time again with the reminder that we have one authority. And that authority isn't our feelings, our experiences. Our authority is found. And in fact, we've got this in the statement so we can all see it. Our views on all these issues flow from our commitment to God and to his word. That's it. If, If we instead serve an authority... Um, within ourselves, this little, you know, the, the old cartoons, you know, the angel and the devil on your shoulder. Well, if we serve one of those authorities, then we just want to stick it to certain people. Just give it, yeah, just let them have it. And then, then the other side's like, no, just be nice. And if we serve either of those, then what we're doing is we're serving an idol of self and not God. And so our goal is that no matter how inconvenient they may be at times, our views are going to flow directly from the authority of God and our commitment to him and his word. Um, So we're going to begin with conviction. Conviction. What do we believe about marriage? I'm going to break our statement up into a number of chunks and kind of work through some of those and then go back. But but we believe that marriage as first described in Genesis and later affirmed by Jesus is a holy institution established by God. Yeah, that's the first part of our statement. So let me let me explain that just a little bit. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, what you find is this creative moment as the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, which does not fit in your head. I dare you. Just on your drive home today, pick one of those words like omniscient and think about that one word and how it relates to God. And by the time you get home, you're going to be like Nothing has ever occurred to God. Just start there. Well then, let's go omnipotent. Can God create a rock that he can't lift? I don't know, but I'm sure God doesn't ask such stupid questions. What does it mean that God is so mighty and massive, so almighty, so omnipotent, so omniscient, so omnipresent, what does it mean? It means this, and we said it last week, that, that God is so massive that he spoke into nothing and something was, just had to respond. So what we see in this wonderful creation is this, this complementary nature of all these created beings. You've got light and darkness, two very opposite complementary things. We talked about the complementary colors last week. I almost got it right both services. <laughs> and the idea is on the color wheel right across from each other, those are the complementary colors. So you put purple and yellow together, those are complementary colors, and they stand in the greatest contrast when they're right next to each other. Well, that, that is an actual biblical principle found in God's creative um, order. So he created light and darkness, very complementary He created heaven and earth, two complementary things. He created land and sea, two complementary things. He took unlike things brought together, standing in contrast, and yet working perfectly together through their relationships. And in all of that creative genius in Genesis chapter 1, you get to one place where there's no complementary part, and it's man. Man. And God looks and sees that man is alone. He says it's not good that man be alone. I could go off on that for a while because, man, that is very true. And so what God then does is this. He parades all of the animals in front of Adam. And Adam, it says he names all the animals. But what God was trying to do was bring all the animals in front and say, okay, so, so does this one compliment you? Does this one compliment you? Does this one compliment you? And at the end of that naming process, at the end of the, the animal parade, His counterpart isn't found. So God knocks Adam out. He snags a rib and he breathes life into the woman. And Adam wakes up. And I love verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2. Adam wakes up and there is now a woman there. And he says, This at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So, so what you have there is a song. And if I was brave enough, I would sing Etta, Etta James' song at last. My kids can tell you that yesterday I sat in my house listening to it over and over again so I could get the notes. It doesn't matter if, if you have notes and you don't have a voice. I can have the notes. I ain't getting them right. So go home and Google at last and then you'll be like, oh, that's Adam's song. Finally, after all of this, one has come and completes him. Interesting to, to, to understand the poetic nature of what he says. I, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Let me, let me lay this out for you. They got, you got man, that, that word is ish. It's an ugly word, isn't it? And actually, you could just ish. It fits at times. Ish. But Adam says, I'm going to call her woman, which is isha very poetic, romantic. And from there, God establishes a holy institution, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we believe not only... That, that marriage, as first described in Genesis and later affirmed by Jesus, is a holy institution established by God, but we also believe that it is the union between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for a lifetime, and that it symbolizes Christ's relationship with his church. So so let me, let me dabble in this. There's, there's one man and one woman in this definition. There's one man and one woman in this marriage relationship as established by God. I'm not going to say a lot about that right here. I'll say a little bit about that later, okay? So here he's, God is taking the two halves, the two parts, and he's bringing them back together in completion. He's putting man and woman, husband and wife together in a relationship that's actually marked out by four different actions. And, and this is a four-week series in and of itself, so I'm just going to blow through this. It's, it says that for this purpose, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So there is a, a leaving aspect that happens. It's the idea of I'm, I'm leaving the, the, the primary relationship that I've had my entire life, which is mama and daddy. And I'm leaving that relationship to begin a new relationship, creating a relationship that replaces all other relationships. Parents, that, that's why we have to remember, while well, you're parenting, you're not raising children. You're raising adults. And so as we continue to seek to raise adults, the goal is that when they come to this place where they do pursue marriage and they are being married, that there is a leaving aspect. So so that means your primary relationship is no longer mom and dad. So that means as newlyweds, when the, the dishwasher breaks, you no longer call your mama first. You don't call daddy to find out what you should do. There's a conversation that should happen before that. It should happen between husband and wife, no matter how long you've been married. We've seen people who have left mom and dad in their marriage relationship very effectively and yet still lived in mom and dad's basement for a period of time we've also seen people move across the world and they didn't leave mom and dad and so let me encourage you parents when your children reach that time let them leave let them leave so one of the actions that comes within the marriage is, is there is a leaving that happens, but there is also a cleaving that happens. It talks about how they will hold fast to each other. That's the covenantal aspect of marriage. It's the idea of being glued together. How many of you have ever super glued your finger to something you didn't want to super glue it to? Okay, that is the picture. It's, this, it's there, it's together, it's not going anywhere, it's stuck, it's now one. The, 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 the idea in marriage is that it's that covenant. It's, it means my promise, my covenant to you, My spouse is is to stay with you, is not based upon your performance. My covenant in this marriage relationship is to stay with you regardless of your performance. This isn't a contract. Can you imagine (laughs) what a wedding ceremony would sound like if it was contractual? I mean, the wedding vows are beautiful, when it's based on covenant, I promise that regardless of health or wealth or circumstances, I am staying right here and I will always be with you. If you ever show up at a marriage ceremony, a wedding ceremony, where there's a contractual vow, I promise to love you as long as you take out the dishes or take out the trash. Don't take the dishes out because then I really won't love you. I promise that I will honor you as long as you don't say stupid things. If you're ever at a wedding ceremony where it's contractual, go back to the gift table, find the toaster you brought, bring it home, and leave as fast as you can, because that marriage is going to implode by the time they make it to the parking lot, because it's based on their own selfish desires, where a covenantal relationship, a covenantal marriage is based on something far greater. It's the picture of, of becoming one flesh. That means you are now singular. That isn't just a sexual term, although it is included. The idea is what is mine is yours and yours is mine. That means, and, and, and I don't, you know it, if I step on toes, I step on toes. That's okay. I believe this with my whole heart. You shouldn't have separate bank accounts. What's, what is yours is yours. You're a single family unit. It's you. That's it cleave to each other, leave mom and dad, become one flesh. Let me, let me, um... oh, that's right. I was trying to figure out what the fourth one was. The fourth one was the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That's next week. That's right. This place is going to be packed. <laughs> We believe divorce was never a part of God's design for marriage. That it's always harmful to the divorcing parties. Go back to the idea of cleaving and having the fingers stuck by superglue. If you just tear that apart, it causes harm to both fingers. And that's the very picture that we find in Scripture. Divorce was, was never intended. Yes, yes, there are biblical grounds. And let me um, jump to that here. God does allow for divorce as in the case of sexual unfaithfulness as seen in Matthew chapter 19. That's an incredible passage where the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up. you think they would learn by now. It is not going to happen. They're like, so, can a, can a husband divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says, wait, what are you talking about divorce for? Marriage was created as a holy institution of God, and it was meant to be permanent. One man, one woman, leaving mother and father, cleaving to each other, becoming one flesh. Who God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And he says, but but because of the hardness of your hearts, God, in His mercy, created an avenue to protect the spouses of those who would continue to chase after Matthew 19's immediate context—a repeated unfaithfulness sexually. But it was never God's design. It was never God's desire. But because of the way we have screwed things up so bad, God has allowed mercifully um, for biblical divorces. And yet, biblical as they may be, the principle's the same. It's still tearing apart. And there's still damage that is done. That is why we believe that even in the case where divorce may be permitted, it's not mandated. And reconciliation through biblical counsel should be the ultimate goal. Um, Let me go back to something here. Um, We believe it's the union between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship, and it symbolizes Christ's relationship with his church. Let me talk about that for a moment. Ephesians chapter 5 is kind of the wedding passage for the most part. It talks about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and Wives, respect and submit to your husband as the church does to Christ. And, and he walks through that whole thing and he says, here's the deal. The, the, the marriage relationship is in picture of the marriage. A marriage relationship is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church and the church's relationship with Christ. So, so let me throw this at you, okay, husbands? So, <laughs> let me throw this at, we'll throw this at wives too. Um, ladies, w- when we talk in Ephesians 5 and the word submission gets mentioned, there is a noticeable recoil in the room. Part of that is because of how badly men have behaved. Part of it's because of our cultural understanding of what submission is. Part of it's because, um, okay, part of it's because of, of who you're married to. And he's abusive physically, emotionally, and sexually. Ladies, if that's the case, the elders and I stand with you we don't just stand with you with our hands in our pockets. We stand with you, fully convinced that if that is the case, then we want to help you, and we'll walk with you as we contact the authorities. And then after that, we'll walk with you. You hear that, right? Um, I, this is not in my notes at all. But that's all right, uh, men. That's you, and you're physically, sexually, or or emotionally, or spiritually abusing your wife. You're a coward. You're a coward. And it demonstrates how broken you are. Repent. Repent and get the help that you need before you ruin not your life, but the lives of your wife and your children. Repent. I have no idea where I was. Oh, yeah, I remember now. It was the happy part. <laughs> picture of, of Christ loving the church is wrapped up in, oh, that's where I went. Oh, wow, now I got it. Now I really know where I was. Submission is like this, this seemingly unattainable moment for wives. How in the world am I? That's so hard. That's so difficult. But we forget that when Paul talks to husbands, he says, husbands, love your wives like Jesus loved the church. You think your bar set high, ladies? Men, Jesus died for the church. That is the way you are supposed to love your wife. You're supposed to deny yourself just as Jesus did when he, when he left heaven and took on flesh, when he willingly laid down his life for his church. You're supposed to, talk talks about how we're supposed to seek her purity, her maturity, her good, just as Jesus did for us when he died for us. So, so does your love, husbands, for your wife, picture the depth of love that God has for his people? And and wives, How are you painting the picture of the church's love for the Savior? Leaving mom and dad, aligning your trust and your allegiance to your husband more than any other, including mom and dad? Do you seek to set your husband up for success? Do you try to paint a picture of your husband in the eyes of other people where they see how successful he is and how much he loves you? Do you seek to come alongside him and support him in his efforts to serve you through his leadership? I mean, you've got to understand that marriage relationship is, is a picture of this, this union. It's a union of opposites. Go back to Genesis 1. It's the same thing. It's this complementary thing that happens when husband and wife come together. Very opposite people, very opposite individuals, very opposite in their sex, in their gender, very opposite in everything they are. And it's a picture of God's relationship with us. We are so opposite of the holy, righteous God, and yet God came for us even though it wasn't deserved. And his love for us is inseparable. So is your marriage a picture of Christ's love for the church and the church's honor, respect, and submission to her Savior? Um, Are you obsessed with meeting the needs of your spouse? Or are you obsessed with getting your own needs met? Mm. That's what Jesus did for us, right? He, it was all about meeting our needs, not his. His life was wrapped up in pursuing you. Your life should be wrapped up in pursuing him. So may we paint that picture well. So um, yeah, here's the hard stop. Now we try to figure out how to transition into concerns. Because what happens when we stand and we promote what we believe about biblical marriage, there's a lot of, um, well, there's there's a lot, not red flags, there's a lot of people like, ooh, ooh, got a question, ooh, got a question. Um, And then you've also got a lot of little lawyers that pop up on your shoulder, but what about... And so I'm going to deal with a couple of those. Time-wise, I'm not going to be able to deal with all of them. So again, I would encourage you, this Wednesday night at 7 p.m., we had a great time this last Wednesday night. This Wednesday night, 7 p.m., in the conference room, you come, you can ask any question. We, I think we really only asked like two questions, and we talked for over an hour and kind of chased around 100 different rabbit trails, um, which was really enjoyable. I know it surprises you that I'm able to do that. I'm usually just laser-focused, I know, but amen, brother. <laughs> Okay, so some of the concerns that our culture has with our definition of marriage in that way. One of the big concerns that is a modern concern that you are going to hear a lot more is this. When Scripture forbids, when churches say that Scripture forbids homosexual relationships in marriage, it's because during that time, The people that lived at the time of the writing of Scripture, they weren't familiar with lovingly, mutual, monogamous, homosexual relationships. And so the Bible's not talking about that. They're talking about the, 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 the relationships, the homosexual relationships that exploit people through, through rape or prostitution or pedophilia. It's, it's those things, not, not a monogamous marriage relationship. So their argument is that there's, there, there was no homosexual relationship back then like we know of it today. The problem with that argument is it is resoundingly untrue. Not just biblical scholarship, not just uh, conservative traditional view of marriage scholarship, but even the most liberal of scholarship would stand against that and say, that's a terrible argument because it's not accurate. I'm just going to give you just a a couple of quick pictures. So Aristophanes, any of you brushed up on your Aristophanes lately? Please don't raise your hand because I have not. (laughs) I realized that as I was asking. Aristophanes is recorded in uh, Plato, sorry, Plato, I knew I was going to do that. I knew it. (laughs) He's not a philosopher. I knew it. Man, I even looked. I looked right at it and said Pluto. Man, anyway. (laughs) Um, That's all right. It's good. (laughs) Plato, not Play-doh, Plato, uh, has a work that he put together in around 350 BC, which is, we could call that antiquities. We could call that old school, right? 350 BC, he put together a work called the Symposium. In the Symposium, there's a speech that is recorded by this guy named Aristophanes. And Aristophanes says, hey, let, me, let me lay out for you what creation was like and, and why um, marriage relationships happen and, and sexual pursuit happens. And he says, this is why. Because Zeus, uh, when he created people, now again, this is not biblical theology. This is their Greek mythology. So I'm just gonna lay it out though because they still reference it. When Zeus created people, he cut them in half. And so for the rest of your life as a created being from Zeus, it is your job then to pursue that lost half. And now there are some who are pursuing the opposite sex, and those are the heterosexuals, and that's what they're doing is just looking for their opposite half. But then Zeus also created some as homosexual. He cut them in half, and they're seeking out the same sex. So in 350 B.C., there is um, documentation that there were culturally acceptable homosexual relationships. So that argument gets tossed. It's not great theology, but it shows in ancient times that homosexual relationships were a known one. Then you you get to, to the Bible, you start talking about Romans chapter one where Paul talks about men who are burning in passion for one another. That's mutuality. That's mutuality, and so so to say that the Bible doesn't know anything about lovingly mutual monogamous homosexual relationships is is just wrong, and when it does talk about homosexual relationships, it is always in the context of sinfulness. Let me me be careful before I do this. Um, I have been back and forth if I even want to put these verses up in front of you, not because I want to hide verses from you. Uh, But these next four passages that I'm going to put up in front of you have become known as the clobber passages. And these are the four most well-known passages in Scripture that speak against homosexuality. And instead of being presented within their full context, they've just been ripped out and applied and said, see, it's wrong, just to kill a conversation. And so my fear is that by putting these up in front of you, one of the things you'll do, is like, see, yeah, that's it. Wham, there it is. But I don't want to do that. I want to make sure I present the context of these as well because I think that is, is remarkably important. So Romans chapter 1, verse 26, he says this. Paul says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Okay, so we can all say without a problem, without a question, that homosexuality is presented as sin. Now, the context, I made this whole thing about context. I want to wait just a few moments to get to the context of that, okay? I'm going to go back to the context. I do not want anybody thinking that at Uniontown Bible Church, our goal is to throw out the clobber passages and be done, so I'm going to go back to the context, okay? I got your permission to do that? Because you saw what happened when I stepped out of my notes before. I will never find my way back. All right. So the, the next one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me go back here. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the very kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Very clearly in that verse, it talks about homosexuality as a sin. Please know that 1 Corinthians 6.11 is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Because what Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, here, here is the list of sins. Don't be deceived. These are sins. And before you go, yeah, those are sins, he says, and such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've experienced the rescue and reconciliation and redemption that comes from Jesus Christ. But don't you dare point an accusatory finger at them because you're simply a beggar who found bread already. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, if a man lies... With a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. All right, so this is honestly where we as, as evangelical Christians who believe the Bible catch a lot of flack about our understanding of homosexuality and naming it as a sin because one of the places that we go is to the book of Leviticus. And so um, those within our culture, rightly so, tell us <laughs> to go back to the context they say, so, so I see how this works. You're going to tell me that homosexuality is a sin out of Leviticus. But in the very next verse, it talks about how wearing polyester is a sin too. So what about that? Or being disobedient to your parents or touching a woman during the wrong time of month. I mean, all those things make you unclean. So, so what are you going to do about that? Go ahead. Yeah, good job. Way to rip something out of context. And let's be honest, they have us dead to rights on that. In the accusation that we've ripped it out of context. So let me set the context. If you understand the Bible as we understand the Bible, it is not a flat book where you just pop in and read and you're good to go. This is a story from beginning to end, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. It is a story that talks about one main character. His name is Jesus. So everything you see in here, there is, there's glimpses, there's shadows, there's times where you look and it's very obvious, there's times it's not so obvious. There's times we've made it very obvious and it wasn't so obvious. Everything in here is about, is about Jesus, it's, it's there. So you get to these Leviticus passages and you understand that, that the, the context of Leviticus is you are a broken people. You are a bunch of sinners And God is a holy, righteous God. And sinful people don't dare walk into the presence of a holy God. You can't, it's impossible. If you're unclean, that's the Leviticus word, then you don't dare walk into the presence of God or else it will be met with your own death. And so what's happening in Leviticus is this law is being laid out and say, listen, if you're going to approach God, let me, there's some ceremonies that you need to go through. It's called the ceremonial law. You're going to have to walk through these things. This is what makes you clean. This is what makes you unclean. Because he, the, the, the author of Leviticus, Moses, wants us to understand how we can approach and how we cannot approach God. So in Leviticus, it talks a bunch about the sacrifices that are offered to atone for sin, so that people could then draw near to God. So there's all these cleanness and uncleanness rules, and, and you could approach God if you didn't eat certain things, but if you did eat certain things, there was a certain amount of time you couldn't approach him, and if you touched certain things, you were out for sure. I mean there was, it, it was if you wore certain things, it's it's all wrapped up into that. So the very picture of Leviticus is how unclean are we. See, it's the the, the bad news of the good news. We are so broken and sinful. We're so unclean. We can't just waltz into God's presence thinking that everything's going to be okay. Because God, God can't be in the presence of sin. Please hear this. That doesn't mean it's his kryptonite. It doesn't mean that when sin approaches God, he shrinks back in fear. No, God can't be in the presence of sin because as soon as it shows up, he destroys it. The most merciful thing God ever did was remove Adam and Eve from the garden. Now maybe I don't mean the most because there's this thing that he did a little later when he told a virgin she was gonna conceive and have a son, his name would be Jesus and he's gonna save his people from their sins. And that's what Leviticus is driving to. It's driving us to this place where we have no ability to walk into God's presence on our own because we're impure, unclean, we're sinful. But Jesus. I mean, Jesus, you get to Mark chapter 7, Jesus declares all foods clean, so no longer are there unclean foods. So praise God, Maryland, you can eat your crabs. Jesus Jesus breaks all kinds of these ceremonial laws. He he, he hangs with the unclean people. He touches lepers. He he touches dead people. He he allows sinners to be in his presence. He's surrounded by the sick. He's surrounded by adulterers and prostitutes. And so he's breaking all of these ceremonial laws. Why? Because Jesus is a rebel? No. Because Jesus didn't come to tear down the law. He came to fulfill it. So he is the completion. His sacrifice is the only sacrifice that is ever needed to make us clean. So with Jesus' sacrifice for sins, from the very inside we are cleansed, which means those ceremonial laws that bring purity to us so we can approach God, they no longer apply. They're no longer in play because Jesus is the better purifier. Hebrews says, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can now go boldly into his presence the veil's been torn in two we sang this morning we are unashamed to go into god's presence because of jesus mercy so shellfish polyester blends doesn't have, that's it we're good we can still worship now because jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law we we would be going contrary to what scripture teaches if we continue to follow those ceremonial laws and we would say jesus sacrifice wasn't enough Okay, that's fine. So, so what about, that, that ceremonial law is great, but there's more to it too. There's the moral law. The moral law is revealed to us throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's also confirmed in the New Testament and it gives us what we know of the character and the holiness of God and how it's supposed to be carried out in his people and that moral law is still binding. The ceremonial law, no. The moral law, still binding. So you get to places, you hear Jesus speak of it, you get to the apostles, Romans 13, there's a big chunk of it right there at the end, talks about how you're supposed to love your neighbors, be generous, how you're supposed to care for your family, obedient to your parents, no murder, no adultery, there's the, the sexual ethic of the Old Testament carries through into the, the New Testament, it's all being upheld by Jesus and the apostles. One, one author puts it this way, that, that Jesus' death changed the way we worship because the ceremonial law is done. But it doesn't change the way we live because the moral law continues. Alright, so one more question about the Leviticus thing. What about the whole capital punishment thing? I mean, parents? How have your children behaved this week? Anybody <laughs> have to stone their children? I hope not. We have a parenting class meeting at 8 o'clock. Maybe we can help. <laughs> um, Well, this is how you understand that. At that time, God's people were a nation. A nation needs constitution. It needs the laws. It needs a legal code. But Israel, God's people, had none of that. Except for this. And so what was happening is that God was laying out his constitution for his people, the law, the code that they would live by, But now it's different because of Jesus and his finished work on the cross. The people of God are no longer restricted to a single nation. We're a church, not a nation. And we're a church that exists in every nation. And so sin is no longer dealt with as a crime, but it's dealt with through the confrontation of sin. Which leads me to my next concern that's brought up. Other sins have been ignored by the church, but this one you just want a hammer. Yeah. Yeah. To our shame. Yeah, it's something we should consider, isn't it, Church? There's there's certain sins that, for whatever reason, seem more tolerable. My, my opinion is because certain sins have different consequences to them, that they seem more palatable. Maybe maybe that's what happened, but what we need to understand is this: your beautiful ten-year-old may have never sinned before. That's not true, but I'm, may have never sinned before. But they're lying to you about the cookie they stole. They are just as deserving of hell as anyone else, because God will not tolerate sin doesn't matter what kind of sin he will not tolerate any sin and what's happened is the church has become inconsistent in dealing with sin right so church let's be more consistent in dealing with sin let's call sin what it is let's lovingly confront sin so let's start now by confronting the sin in your own heart you're lying Your greed, your pride, your lust, your adultery, your drunkenness, your gossip, your addiction, your rebellion, your anger your attempt at making yourself God. See, remember I told you I'd set the context of Romans 1? So in Romans 1, it it laid out these sins. And he says that that God got to the place where where this sin in the people's lives had snowballed to such a level because it had been left unchecked. And so as, as, as sinners continued to move further from God, it finally got to the place where they had fully devoured the lie that truth can't be found, that they in and of themselves are truth, that they define truth, and they define it based on how they feel or what they want. So you get to, to Romans chapter 1, and, 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 and Paul just unloads, and, and much to the chagrin of many theologians and, and to myself is that there is a horrible chapter break between chapter one and chapter two, because we missed the point of what Paul's saying in chapter one. So let's look at Romans chapter one, verse 28. Paul has just gone through and talked about how God had given up many people to the lusts of their hearts, how they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, how they were worshiping and serving the creature, not the creator, Verse 28, he says this, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That is one of the greatest punishments to our sin is God allowing us to have our own way. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, "'Deceit, maliciousness, they're gossips and slanderers "'and and haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, "'inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, "'foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. "'Though they know God's righteous degree,' Sorry, let me try that again. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I mean, you hear Paul ramping up there, don't you? And you, if you're not careful, you get on that bandwagon. And like, Go get them, Paul. Come on, God. Let the fire rain down on them. So you continue reading in chapter two, verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse. Oh, man. If you stop there, you know where he's going, Right? He said, those people deserve judgment. They have no excuse. Ah, curveball. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Confront sin start with your own. There's plenty there. To stand for a biblical definition of marriage, and I want to make sure I distinguish that from a traditional definition of marriage. We don't stand on tradition. We stand on Scripture. So to stand on a biblical definition of marriage is going to take great courage, Um uh, the here's, it's real, it's happening again. It just happened again um, this week. Um, and I won't get into the details of that because I'll get way off, but it just happened again this week. Um, one of the things that we are going to hear regularly and over and over again is that we are promoting hate speech. Um, let, me, let me help you, give, give you a few words. Um, you'll be called homophobic. Uh, the definition of someone with a phobia is that there is an unnatural fear or dread of something, Um, Friends, if you are living biblical Christianity and you are building relationships with those who need Christ, then you can't be called homophobic if you're hanging out with those who are homosexual because by definition, you should fear and dread them and avoid them at all costs. Which leads me to this. Are you avoiding homosexuals at all costs? Then their accusation of homophobia is accurate. You're going to be called prejudiced. You're going to be prejudiced against the homosexual community. And, 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 and let, me, let me be clear on that one. Uh, I believe homosexuality is a sin. If I say at any t- point that that homosexual who wrestles with that sin is a worse sinner than myself, then I am prejudiced. And their accusation would be accurate. They're going to say that this is all just hateful. It's all hate, and and let's be honest. Hate wants to destroy. It wants to tear down. Love warns. It pleads with someone. It comes alongside, and it does all it can to help a person live. So so why are we, as a culture, as a community, why have we been so terrible at reaching the homosexual community? Because I believe that for many self-identifying Christians, it is hate speech. Because they do want to tear them down. They do want to destroy them. I believe, particularly in this area of homosexuality and gay marriage, that we have been nothing short of being Jonah. Sitting on the hill waiting for the fire to fall from heaven to devour those evil, sinful Ninevites. And pouting when it doesn't happen fast enough we would do well to learn the lesson of Jonah where God comes alongside him and said, Jonah, I made them. I love them. I'm fully invested in them. Why would I extend grace to you, Jonah, and not to them? which leads to compassion. This is the same statement. Um, We believe that every person should be treated with compassion, love, kindness, gentleness, and dignity, no matter what views they hold on gender, marriage, and sexuality. So, yeah. Our speech must have a distinctly Christian accent to it when we talk about these things. (sighs) So I've used this before. Don't freak out in the back. I'm going to turn off the microphone in a second because I'm going to yell really loud. Don't freak out in the front either. (laughs) Um, Somehow we've fallen for the lie that truth ceases to be truth if we say it softly. But let me illustrate it for you. I can get on my hands and knees before my six-year-old who's working through their math problems, their twos tables. Say, okay, buddy, you ready? Two plus two. No, no, no. Two plus two equals four. Let's try it again. Two plus twos. No, man. Two plus two is Four. Problem is, is that for some reason, in this discussion, we have decided that we can't talk like this. Instead, it becomes this. Did two plus two stop being four when I yelled? Did two plus two stop being four when I spoke with kindness and compassion? The truth didn't change, but I guarantee you, the person listening listened to one and not the other. They need a Savior. We're not saints. We're rescued sinners. How, How foolish is it for us to look back at someone who is still held captive even though you've been freed and be angry with them I can't believe you're still captive, what's wrong with you but that's what we do with the gay and lesbian community, we we, we continue to do that and we forget, we we share a common humanity, we share a common problem that is sin and there's a common hope and it's the atonement of Jesus Christ being applied to your account folks we need to stop trying to make people good sinners sin sin Newsflash. Stop trying to make them good. Stop trying to force those who are homosexual uh, into heterosexual relationships. You know why? Because the opposite of homosexual behavior isn't heterosexual behavior. It's holiness. Stop trying to to, to act like by being heterosexual they gain that holiness. They don't. You know how I know? Because I know a lot of heterosexuals are going to be burning in hell. Stop trying to move salvation into something else or another action. It's not. Salvation is in Jesus alone. Hmm. All right, so. (laughs) I didn't follow my notes at all. I hope you followed. Let me end with this. The band's gonna come and we're gonna sing. And we're gonna sing about the gospel. We're gonna sing about the gospel because that's where our hope lies. It lies not in moralism. It doesn't lie in our sexual identity. Our hope is found in Christ. May you and I be passionately consumed with sharing that hope of Jesus with them because they're just like us. would not you pray with me before we sing? Father, I thank you for taking this hot mess of what just happened and doing something with it at all. I love you, God. I love the way you work sometimes. I love what you did even in my heart while I'm standing up here. God, would you just open our hearts and open our minds, open our eyes. God, forgive us for for trying to find salvation in behavior. Lord, instead, may we continue to cry out from the mountaintops that salvation is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Thanks for what he's done for us. Thanks for the salvation we have tasted and seen in Christ. We love you. May that be more true when we leave here than when we came in. Amen.